Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have guests introduce themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Chi. I go by she, her, and uh, I was born in Hong Kong, but I grew up here in Toronto and uh, I'm a designer and I'm typically found, I like to say at the intersection between business and creative. I followed kind of a, a little bit of an unconventional path to get here, but now I work um, independently helping startups and businesses with their investment funding. And uh, I develop all sorts of things. Um, sometimes it's pitches, sometimes it's presentations, sometimes it's more general growth material. But uh, yeah, I also work uh, with you, Zach, and our, our wonderful team. Shout out to Zach Studios. Oh, outside of work, uh, I love biking. I'm kind of married to my bike a little bit. And I actually have a goal this summer. So I'm trying to hit 100 kilometers every week on my bike, which, uh, <laughs> yeah, some weeks I don't quite get there. And some weeks I over hit. So all in all, I feel like it levels out. And uh, I love boxing. Uh, I'm a writer. I like going to comedy shows. Yeah, just very much. Uh, I love to try everything once type of person. I love that. A little bit of everything. You said at the intersection of business and technology and that you help businesses do pitches and presentations and other things. I, I know what all of that means uh, because we work together. But um, maybe for our audience, you could explain what that means. Like, what is what is designing for business like? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, there's actually a little bit of a story with that. So I, I say like, I don't really come from a traditional design path because I actually come from a business background. So I had previously worked uh, when I was in school, I started as a, a digital strategy consultant at this place called CGI. And then uh, I spent some time there and then moved over to PwC where I was just kind of doing like business analysis and things like that. Yeah, after I spent some time there, I guess I just didn't feel really at home with those types of jobs, or I uh, I didn't really identify that strongly with the corporate environment. So yeah, I, I kind of just did what a sensible person would do. And I just quit one day. And I was like, okay, I, I'm just gonna buy like a one way ticket to Spain. And then from Spain, it became like Lithuania, it became Estonia, and it just like became all these places. And I, I ended up taking like half a year off and that became like a little bit of a personal hiatus, um, which, which I was privileged enough to do. But that was really like the moment I hit a clarity of like, what are, what are things I should stop doing and start doing? And uh, I really thought about like my role in business. And the way I started thinking about it was a, re a lot of things in business are very um, fact-based and they're based on kind of structures and models. 
And the one thing I did actually in those jobs, which really stuck out to me, uh, was actually just like the, the presentation process. Because as a consultant, there's actually this joke where like 90% of the time you're just working in PowerPoint and the other 10% you're, you're like working with people. And the fact is, is, is that's true. <laughs> so I, I just became so intimately familiar with like creating decks every day. And a lot of people have kind of misconceptions when it comes to creating decks I find because, you know, sometimes people think about it as just do things look right on the page? Are things aligned? Are the words there? But it's actually much more than that. It's kind of um, that storytelling aspect of, you know, even in business, if you have like a vision or a mission, you're trying to oftentimes like persuade a group of people towards a direction or you're trying to inspire them. So in the work that I did previously, there was like a little bit of that where there was creativity involved to try to bring a message to life. And I would say like, that's that's kind of where I see the intersection between business and creative because business is about like getting it right, getting the facts in order, but then in order to just like change an opinion or affect a larger crowd to do to do like a positive change, you need that bit of creativity in there to to again like bring that message to life. So that was kind of a long-winded answer, but that that's kind of where I see myself in between those two spaces floating back and forth. We we love a long-winded answer on this show. I um I realize I, I misspoke. I said business and technology, and you said business and creative. So just to clarify uh, what you said, and uh, I'm sure the audience caught that, but I'm just realizing. You talked about earlier in your career doing like business strategy. How did you get into that? Like, how does somebody start doing business strategy? And then, do you feel like it has a lot of influence on the work that you do today as a designer? Yeah, that's a, that's also a good question. So I actually stumbled into it. I never really intended to become a, a business consultant. I had studied business, but I had also studied English. So it was like one of those dual uh, majors. I actually wanted to be a journalist for a long, a long time, like a traveling journalist. But um, I had this co-op program at my school. So that's basically when you like work for four months, go to school for four months, work for four months. So that's how I kind of got my foot in the door with the initial consulting firm. And then from there, it's, I think it's like with any job, you pick up a little bit along the way and it's the people you meet and, and just like the wisdom or the knowledge that they impart on you and you kind of, you grow through that. And I find it's not just, it's not just me. It's very common with anybody that start out uh, one way academically and end up in a, a completely different path, just depending on their life experiences. But for me, that was kind of my route. And uh, I think a lot of it is having that background knowledge of what um, like business leaders are trying to communicate. I think the task of a, a designer is complicated sometimes in a sense that you're trying to uh, reiterate someone's vision through your design and without a clear understanding of exactly like what their vision is or what their goals are, it's very hard for you to be able to uh, communicate it in a way that resonates with them, with you and their audience. So for me, like just being able to cliche to say, but like speak both languages helps me see where that person is coming from with more clarity so that, you know, ultimately, hopefully we can be more aligned uh, in terms of what then I would create creatively out of it. You mentioned that during traveling, you sort of realized that you had that step back moment and you saw like the industry for what it was and the work that you were doing and it sort of informed your career change. I know we're living in a 
pandemic and travel is sort of out of the question right now, but maybe post pandemic, do you think that that's really an important step for designers or anyone that wants to become a designer to go to some other places? I think it's definitely a loss that travel is banned right now in a lot of places. But do I think that travel is really the only means or the most important means to kind of broaden your perspective? No, I think there's a ton of ways to do that. As a designer, I like to think of creativity as being able to induce like other disciplines into your craft. For instance, like I really like behavioral economics and I really like just like dancing. (laughs) And so somehow it's like, I try to infuse what I learn from all these different things into one. So even like with dancing, for instance, you you dance to like a song, obviously, and, and in every song, there's the chorus. So you know, there's like a significant portion that will repeat throughout those like three to five minutes. And it's sort of that like, repetitive element that keeps you engaged with the song. And in a, in a different way, it's similar with design, where like, you need to keep some sort of consistent beat throughout your design to keep someone engaged. So it's like little things like that, where I think the more you explore hobbies outside of design and the more you just experiment with different things throughout your life and pick up different activities, I think that just generally allows you to tap into more ideas that you can infuse into your design to to become more creative. And traveling is an awesome way to do that, but it's not the only way. Can you share a bit about what your day-to-day looks like or what your process typically looks like? I'm now self-employed and I kind of love it because that means my day-to-day is is so wholly different than what my life used to be like. I typically like outside of work, I have certain practices and like habits that I do in the morning. I love doing yoga. I have to go for my bike ride and I have to just bring my my energy to a certain level before I can really dig in and work. My everyday is really different because now that everybody's working remote, I think A, it's like the way you interact and communicate with people is is a little bit different. And I find that I'm actually socializing less than I do um, compared to like a pre-COVID world. But now like with Zach Studios, like because we work with um, clients all around the world, that's also been really interesting for me too, right? Because I find that like work styles um, sometimes differ depending on the region or the area that you're in sometimes that's just down to like communication styles, but sometimes it's, it's even just like work styles and expectations. So that's been really interesting um, to get familiar with as I shift towards like more remote work and more remote clients based in, in different locations. Do you have any examples that you'd be willing to share of like different work styles you are encountering? So I, I had a client actually from Spain it was really, it felt more relaxed than when I typically work with North American clients. I think in North America, we were very diligent and uh, focused on accomplishing things on time. And there's like a huge focus on that. And I think in other parts of the world, there's a a relaxation that comes with it. And to me, that's a a great thing because I think that relaxation allows you to sometimes focus more on the quality as opposed to the the quantity um, you can think of it as. You mentioned that now you're freelancing. How long have you been freelancing? For probably like two years now. And it's interesting because I I didn't really think about freelancing back then. It actually came up so organically. I was working at this insurance company at the time. And it was just through like kind of meeting different people and talking to different people outside of work that 
Um, my coworker's wife was a, a psychotherapist and she was hosting a, a workshop for a law firm. So she needed help with designing a, like a presentation workshop around that. So then I, that was sort of my first client. And then another coworker had this side business where he was making his own vodka grown from uh, carrots out of his farm. And he needed help with the, like a pitch for that. So to get uh, his liquor on, onto shelves. So that, you know, it was like all sorts of these different interesting projects born out of an environment where I wasn't really necessarily seeking that out. But um, yeah, after sort of getting, getting clients and getting referrals, I was like, you know, I, I prefer this so much more, like being able to dictate who I work with and, and sort of when and what we do and own that creative process more is really what um, pushed me to, to become more of a, a self-employed individual. And for now, I won't look back. <laughs> I, I like the autonomy it brings me, but uh, who knows where, where my values will be in like 20, 30 years. I agree with you. I feel the same way about it. I'm dying to know, did you try the carrot vodka? I actually did not get to try the carrot and vodka. Damn, I should have I got too a late. hold of that. It's Never really too not. late. <laughs> I need to check if it, if it ended up making it on the shelves, actually. Good reminder. Yeah, that's a client follow up, right? It's a business, a business conversation. Right there. <laughs> I usually ask, what's one piece of advice for someone just starting out in design? But maybe I could ask you, because it's such a unique field, what advice do you have for someone that wants to start out in presentation design? That's kind of a hard one, because I've seen so many people come from so many disciplines end up in presentation design. There's someone like me who didn't formally study design and I wound it up in it. So it's so open that I would say if you come from business and you come from technology, you can go into presentation design smoothly if you have the desire to because you have all that education that you can bring forward and it's going to be relevant depending on like the clients you work with because 90% of the time there's some aspect of business that it would be knowledgeable if you understood and then like a lot of the times it's it's fintechs who are trying to raise money especially here in Toronto so if you're in technology it's pretty um, smooth of a transition but for designers like I worked at a um, presentation agency here in Toronto for a little bit and the designers that they hired were actually just like straight from art school it was actually pretty interesting because I had learned that in art school, you you don't really use presentation, like standard presentation tools, right? You use like Adobe a lot of the times and, and some of the other just well-known um, creative tools. So it was actually a little bit difficult to make the transition to be able to just translate their skills into this completely new new tool with like different functionalities and all that stuff. but. I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> that That's kind of like the, the different paths that I've seen enter this field. But I think a, a big piece of it is that storytelling aspect. And behind storytelling, I think empathy is important because like a great story is really just about sharing the moments that allow someone else to connect to your story. Like a great story is just being able to uh, receive some sort of like emotional response out of somebody and I think that's a pretty universal trait you know like everybody has the capacity 
to feel for another person. Everybody has the capacity to be empathetic. And so that's a really great piece of it. I think when people start out with, with creating presentations, it's, it's more focused around the technical aspects and making sure like things look great, things sound great. But at the end of the day, I think a great presentation needs to, needs to have some sort of human mission behind it. I absolutely agree. And, and like you said, it, it's not hard. I, I feel like making a website in a lot of ways is making a presentation. It's you're telling a story from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. It, it's not that different. And I think that um, while we are in sort of this design niche, it's still all the fundamentals of what a lot of designers are, are building. What do you what do you like the most about presentation design? I don't know if I've ever asked you. That's a great question. What do I like most about it? That's hard. I like a lot of it. <laughs> so yeah, for the context, I've been doing presentation design for nine years. Yeah, I, it's kind of weird. I I feel like you mentioned this. I kind of fell into it myself. I was teaching keynote at the Apple Store, and then I was working at Square and the presentation designer left the company. And so it was sort of like this melding of, well, I can design and I'm a good at keynote and we use keynote here. So it, it sort of like started that way. But as I've progressed in my career, I have investigated other types of design arms to my career and just always come back to it. So it's a good question. I, I think the storytelling is, is a part of it that I really enjoy it also is similar to audio and video in that it's time-based media. You know, you go from one slide to the next. It's a progression. Sometimes you go a little back, but that's just like, you know, rewinding a movie or something. It's it's pretty linear. And yeah, I don't know. There's something about that that's enjoyable too. It's sort of this encapsulated story the way that a movie is. That's such a good way to to explain it. I never would have thought about it in that way, but I like that explanation a lot. And I find it's really interesting, you know, like, how people fall into the things that they do. You know, when people ask you like, what is it that you love doing as a child that you you miss or wish you could do now? And that was, that was such a big question for me because um, like when I came back from traveling, I was really just so like clean slate. I was like, I don't wanna go back to what I was doing but I'm not really quite sure what I want to be doing. And so I thought about that question for a long time. And then I distinctly remember when I was a child at like the age of like nine or 10, I would take my family's like very bulky camcorder and just run around the house and then shoot these like MTV crib style videos. Do you know MTV cribs? Yes. I love that. Yeah. And my brother like always blasted like Lupe Fiasco in, in Kanye West back then. So it was just always in my head. I like looped it with like these styles of music and I just like made all these stupid videos and uh, basically, I, I like, yeah, I came back from travel. I thought about that moment in my life. I was like, I really love doing that. Like, why don't I do more of that? So I, that's, that's when I ended up like a couple of years ago, I taught myself um, like videography and just started video editing. And then I put together like a short film of my travels that I just released like to my inner circle of friends. But then one day I was like, okay, why not? I'm just going to submit it to like other like mobile film festivals because everything at the time I just shot on my phone. So it was by no means like high quality production, but I just wanted to put it together. And it actually ended up being accepted into one of these festivals. Yeah, and, and sort of that motion is what picked off what I consider like a pretty good creative career now where I have like autonomy because it was like really after that that people started noticing and then 
asking like for help with their videos or and then that became like other other creative assets and things like that so i think it's like fascinating when you just like take a step back think about if what you're doing is right for you and then if not just like taking that risk and, and going for things that resonated with you once upon a time I think honestly, there's a lot of really solid separate pieces of advice in what you just like explained for, for people starting out. But one I'd like to pick out is just the moment that you were like, I taught myself videography and then I started doing it and then I submitted it to a competition. That That is something maybe, I don't know in your experience, but in my experience, like at school, I wasn't necessarily taught to do those things, to, to do that, like teach yourself a thing and just go for it and explore. And it sounds like it came out of a passion of yours rather than like a desire for a different career or more money. It's just sort of like you expressed something that you enjoyed and then it steered your career. And um, I think that's really solid advice. That's a, I love the way you reworded that too. And, you know, I think it's different. Like for me, I know my values are like, I like change a lot and I like to switch things up. But for other people, you know, like, they value security and stability, and um, it's not as necessary, perhaps, to, to branch out. So part of it is just kind of knowing yourself. Like, if you're the type of person like me who needs a lot of, like, different inspiration to stay motivated to do new things, then then do that. If you feel comfortable how you are and it's working for you, then do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, different advice for different people. I think that applies to more senior people, but do you also have maybe different advice for more senior designers? The way I think about my life and, and like I would encourage others to is like, I think you should always question the path that you're on, whether it's right for you or whether there's like more things you want to be doing. I think people change careers all the time or they change disciplines. There's an idiom actually that, that goes uh, throw good money after bad, which is basically like, you know, when you go to the casino and you spent like, hundreds of dollars, but then you think spending another hundred is going to recoup all your money. It's basically that, but in, in a career sense, it translates to you spend 10 years doing one thing and then you're afraid to do something else because you've already invested so much time doing it. So you're throwing, you're chasing good money after bad. Wow. So yeah, I think a lot of people look at it like an opportunity cost where it's like, do I really want to make a big change? If I'm like a doctor today, but I want to be a designer tomorrow, is it worth it? Because I spent so many years in medical school. And I, I don't know if it's worth it, honestly, but I know that for people that don't get to explore that or have that thought um, just in, in their minds for so many years and it doesn't get relieved or, or uh, realized, I know that um, is not <laughs> a good feeling, especially if it grows over time. So even if you're senior, I don't think it's it's too hard to at least take a little bit of time either off or just doing doing it outside of your work hours. I, I mean, if you're in the position to do so, to explore that. I think that people look at their their day-to-day jobs as like being so important. I think everybody looks at their job as being very important and I'm sure that it is. But I also think like on the greater scheme of things, even if you take like one year off and explore something else and then if it doesn't work out, go back to what you were doing a year later, a year out of your entire life is, is not going to be much. So yeah, I mean, take the chance if, if you feel like you're in a position to do so. And if I could build on that for a second, um, you know, we're an amalgamation of all of our past experiences. 
And I like to remind people a lot that switch careers that your experiences in your last career are always going to be applicable to your new career. And it might not be a straight line of like, I learned the principles of grids and now I'm making book covers that are on grids. Like that's not necessarily easy to compare when you've changed careers, but like you had a career doing business strategy and now you're designing presentations for businesses. You probably have a wealth of experiences to draw on and you switched careers. So I think the doctor that decides to become a rock climber will eventually use some of their skills uh, as a doctor in that new career, maybe specifically rock climbing, but maybe that's a weird example for me. (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's keep driving that example home. Yeah. And then as a rock climber, no, but that's such a good point. Like you'll never lose any of the skills that you gain. Like you'll find a way to embed them in anything that you do. Like nothing, nothing you ever do is going to be a waste. Even you, like you were a, a Figma, like instructor or like you taught it, so you're so familiar with it, and now we use it so much. So everything just it just translates in a way. Yeah, and and I like even to go to the more fundamentals. Of the skill of teaching something is really useful when you're doing anything, you know. So it's it's a skill. But like I started my career as a glass blower, and obviously I'm not blowing glass today. But I'm sure that if I were to sit down and look at it, like a lot of skills that I use come from that time. That's so fascinating that you were a glass blower once upon a time. That's so cool. I've never met a glass blower before. It's an expensive thing to do, so it's hard to it's hard to make it in that field, I think. But that that's my personal experience. I'm sure there's lots of successful glass blowers out there. But only one that's made this transition to education <laughs> That's right. And his name is Zach. If there's any other out there, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, really, really change uh, gears here. In our industry specifically, in every industry, but in our industry specifically of the creative kind, there is so many kinds of bigotry. There's white supremacy and transphobia and homophobia and ableism and racism and all the isms, and we could go on and on. It's a lot. How do you feel about it? What? How do you look at it? And what tips do you have, if any, of like fighting the like bigotry in our industry? I think a, bi- a big piece of it is just to stay educated on how all these systems play out between human beings in real life. I think that's really important. There's definitely no denying that certain minorities and, and groups face discrimination and inequality in the workplace and out of the workplace. But I also think at the same time, how you choose to it is going to have an effect on your your mental health. So definitely inequalities do provoke anger. But personally, I find that being able to, to pick my battles has saved me a lot of unnecessary energy um, from sources that I, I just like rather not deal with in the moment. But yeah, I think, you know, the world is just getting more and more PC over time. And there are things that I've probably said or done in my past that like don't live up to today's standards. So it's this continuous cycle of, of everybody just getting better as a whole. And that's kind of changing our, our social norms at the same time. So I find that like, it helps for me to be around people who have that same mindset of like continuously learning from each other and being open-minded enough to like know when you're wrong. I think then if, if you take that practice and like reflect that back out. So like, for instance, if I hear something offensive, it's 
it's not always easy to be able to uh, recognize that, you know, nine times out of the 10 people aren't intentionally trying to cause harm, but it's a, a miseducation that um, perhaps, uh, you know, ha had them say that in the first place. So it's, it's a shared education, I think is important between people, um, but specifically in the world of design, um, being aware of just practices around um, inclusivity and accessibility when it comes to like simple things like web meeting web standards, color standards, um, sight and sound, but also when it comes to language, like how you refer to, or, or how you use like pronouns or um, you give options for people that come from, you know, uh, groups that aren't focused on as much. So yeah, I think these are important things to kind of like weave into your design. And often in my experience, I feel like accessibility is often just considered as an afterthought rather than like designing with accessibility in mind. It's often design first and correct for accessibility. So I've been trying to not improve that process, but uh, switch it. So I'm actually including it instead of just thinking about it as an afterthought. If, any, if anyone has tips on, on how to do that more, I'd love to hear it. But for me, it's just this uh, awareness piece that helps me. And there's a couple of people I follow um, on Instagram that you know help me learn about these things. So I'm sure everybody has a lot of sources by now. I think that's really important. And um, maybe, do you feel like that outside of the like the design work that like specifically like building things with accessibility in mind, do you feel like the interpersonal relationships in the design field are better or worse than other fields. Experiencing all those bigotries, I think personally has happened a lot in the workplace and in meetings and at conferences and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on how we can, I don't know if we'll ever end all these bigotries, but like at least fight them actively in those spaces? Like outside of the design space? Well, in design, but like outside of the computer. Oh, sometimes it's about um, being okay with confrontation and meeting someone in that moment and explaining to them uh, things from your perspective so that people can share perspectives with each other. I I think it's it's a problem that not one person can solve. I think it's a collective effort to be better that drives this, this motion and energy forward of everybody um, just leveling up co collectively. Uh, I think historically it's been less and less people, or not less and less people, but historically it's it's been a smaller group of people who are spreading this message. Now it's growing because we're seeing uh, more movements that everybody is being more a part of. Um, I think the, I think it's not an overnight effort. <laughs> I, I don't think things will necessarily change in a year and two years, but I think they are changing at a rate that maybe we can't see because we're living it day to day. So I think it is it is around people continuously sharing with each other what they're learning, what they're hearing, what they're gaining, and uh, just keeping that, that cycle growing. I think that's so important to all of us be the learning. And I really liked what you said about like, if I look at myself 10, 15 years ago, I'm sure I wouldn't like what I saw, you know? I, if we had access to myspace archives i think a lot of people might be like embarrassed and ashamed of the things they've said on online to other people so uh, i i really agree with you that, that i think it's important that as we're learning we're reflecting on that and building ourselves over time <laughs> to 
continually because if you look back at yourself and don't see anything wrong I think that there's like a missed opportunity there for growth totally and I was actually talking about this with a friend of mine recently we're talking about cancel culture and how that it's sometimes it's not appropriate right because cancel culture is a little bit around if someone does something inappropriate we're going to cancel them and I think while that's sometimes effective I don't know if that's the best way to do it because if you cancel them, then you don't really get a chance to correct it. And if you don't correct it, it'll keep happening some somewhere else, sometime else. I have maybe more cynical views on cancel culture in that, like, show me someone we've actually canceled. Because uh, I think every person that has, quote unquote, been canceled still is continuing to behave the way they were and continuing to have the platforms that they had. And um, yeah, I don't know. I like to think of it as consequences culture, but still they're haven't been a lot of people with the consequences. So you're so right. It's just how I feel about it. But it's true though. Even, you know, big names that get canceled, they're just, it's just more spotlight on them and it gives them more of a stage to speak more. And sometimes that's disappointing to see. Well, who is one person that you think all of our listeners should know about? There's this one guy, his name is James Victor and he's a graphic designer. I believe he also speaks. He's definitely an author. And he has a very, uh, like, provocative style about him. He comes from a history, I don't know too much about it, but I know he dropped out of two colleges and kind of had to form his own, own path as a designer. But I really like his philosophy when it comes to design because he has this idea that he says he just calls fuck perfection. <laughs> he actually has a book where he reversed the letters. So he says fuck perfection, which is like basically yeah, like encourages you to to break out of the mold and design based on uh your own your own voice versus what's what's generally accepted and what's been made popular and you know there's always an aspect of work that's kind of necessary for survival or your financial health but what he says and what i agree with is that it, it should also be seen as some type of avenue for fun and like exploration and sometimes Doing things by breaking the rule in, rules in interesting ways is is very rewarding. So, yeah, he's he's a very good speaker when it comes to like finding your own voice and and owning what makes you unique and uh, like tapping into what makes you weird because it, it's probably amazing and that flaws are great. I'm really excited to like learn more about him. I'm gonna I'll, I'll put whatever I find about him. I will put in the show notes for people to click on. What about reading? What do you think everyone should read? So I always actually recommend the same book to people. It's not exactly design related per se, but it's beneficial if you're a person who's ever needed to negotiate with anybody. And it's called Never Split the Difference by uh, Chris Voss. Chris Voss is this guy who is an ex uh, FBI hostage negotiator. So naturally you think the book is very like bravado, aggressive military point of view. Which, if it was, I honestly wouldn't wouldn't be into it one bit. But uh, you know, this book is is so opposite from that because it focuses just on like a, a human point of view, and it talks about how um, two people can work together and actually make the situation the adversary. So yeah, it's it's negotiation strategies, and I know negotiation people think of like as manipulation, as persuasion, as convincing, but it's. Uh, in this book, it's it's softened in, in the way that it's really just two people trying to reach an 
agreement and it could be for small day-to-day things or, or like more important things, I'm sure it could extend into the world of design and, and business. So it's a, it's really applicable anywhere and I would recommend it to everybody. I'm going to read it. I'm very looking forward to that and I will link to that in the show notes as well. So I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So we take the profits from this show and we split it across our guests. Outside of that, are there ways that the audience can support you? So I I don't have a, a huge social presence actually. I'm trying to remove myself off social more and more, at least for a little a little while. So my activity is pretty minimum there. I think with everything going on, like I think it, it places a, a pretty big stress on a lot of people. And we've had like the I'm sure everybody has heard, but like the Beirut explosion happened recently. So I think if anybody is in a position to support, there are some great causes um, happening there that you could reach out to. There's uh, Impact Lebanon, there's Project Hope, and and I'm sure there's a whole bunch out of there. But uh, yeah, if you have the means, maybe check those out because it's just like, it's really unfortunate. um, Some unforeseen things happening around us. Absolutely. There's, it's really, really tragic what happened in Beirut and what's happening in Lebanon since then. So yeah, please, if you can support and we'll put links for all those organizations in the show notes as well. Usually I end by asking where people can find you, but it sounds like you're trying not to be on social media, which I applaud. I think every day when I meet someone without a Twitter account, how jealous I am. So um, how, how can people find you if you want to be found. I, I have a LinkedIn <laughs> that I don't really use that much, but that's one thing that's going to be consistently open. So you, you could probably find me on there if you're interested to just chat or, or to partner on, on anything and everything. I'm not happy to, to connect. Fantastic. Well, people, LinkedIn, there you go. Chi, thank you so much for being on Betsy. I've really enjoyed talking with you about all of this stuff, I, I luckily get to talk to you more frequently than this, but it's nice to, to be able to talk about some of these topics. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? I don't think anything in particular. I'm really glad to, ha- to have been on. I think this is really fun. So uh, I'm happy to be back on once you have uh, all the other people that you have on your list ready to interview who I'm looking forward to listening to. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking of doing maybe a, um, like a, one year later or something like that and having people come on again or um or two years i don't know i haven't figured it out yet but maybe some way to bring people back onto the show multiple times oh i love that it's like a where where are they at now yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) or maybe i could um i pivot to like an mtv cribs of designers apartments i know just the person who can help you with that actually is it is it you it is it is uh it is me Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> well, she, thank you again for being on Bezier. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. Bezier is a design interview podcast, amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.